0: Okay, so let's talk about the first mega-famous movie teenager, Mickey Rooney. From 1939 to 1941, the 5'2 Andy Hardy star was the top box office draw in Hollywood. To put that in perspective, here's what else was going on in Hollywood from 1939 to 1941. The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Citizen Kane... So Mickey Rooney's success streak was great, but it stopped when he was drafted into the army in World War II. When he came home, Mickey was in a bad career spot. He was too old to play a kid, but too childlike to play a man. He kept making movies, over 300 of them. Some were good, some later embarrassed him, like when he played an Asian landlord in Breakfast at Tiffany's, way before people were woke. And some were big hits, like Mickey Rooney's part in all three of Ben Stiller's Night at the Museums. Yet, when Mickey Rooney died in 2014 at 93, his estate claimed he only had $18,000 to his name. They said he only had one pair of shoes. And also, the complicated tangle of eight ex-wives and eight kids. Lawsuits were filed, lots of them. But at least Mickey is at peace here and now at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which is literally next door to us here at the MTV Podcast Studios. So my wonderful producer Mukta Mohan and I are toasting the legacy of a man whose life spanned all of Hollywood, from silent flicks to today. Wherever you are and whatever you're holding, toast Mickey Rooney too. Hi, I'm Amy Nicholson, Chief Film Critic for MTV News, and welcome to Skillset, the podcast where every guest is an expert, and every week they teach you and me a new way to look at the movies. As you heard last week, this season is dedicated to high school movies. The crushes, the classmates, the clothes. But since this is the week before Halloween... Today, we are going to talk about the sinister side of high school. That means witches and murder and kids who get stalked by death. First up, writer, fashion queen, and real-life witch Megan Friedet tells us how the craft cast a spell on her life. Then, American Honey star Sasha Lane digs into her favorite high school movie. The popular chicks kill their most popular friend, black comedy Jawbreaker. Finally, classics instructor Lucas Herkenroeder changes the way you see Final Destination. It's not just a franchise where a bunch of hot teens die horrible deaths. It's a modern-day Greek tragedy. That's all in this week's episode of Skillset. When The Craft came out, Every teenage girl grabbed a goth lipstick, a black choker, and a magic candle. I went from not knowing a single witch to not knowing any girl who wasn't at least a little mystical. Feruzabalk and her fierce foursome of high school witches showed us a new type of young girl. One who didn't take any shit from anybody, especially the idiot boys in class. Our first guest, Megan Friedet, drank the movie's potion too. Today, in addition to writing for Rookie Mag and Pitchfork, she's a practicing witch with a lot to say about what the craft means for today's magical women and men. So, Megan, what happened in the young witch community when the craft came out?
1: I think when you're when you're a young girl, uh, religion and spirituality is something that you do with your family. It involves either going to church or to mass or synagogue or whatever it is, and you spend religious days with your family and. I think the craft was really important in showing girls that they could be spiritual with each other for the first time, and, and girls their own age.
0: As you learned more about it, how accurate is the magic in the film?
1: Yeah, surprisingly, a lot of the rituals that they did are true to the Wiccan tradition, especially the part where they're invoking the spirit uh, when they're at the beach during the thunderstorm. Invoking the spirit isn't so much a Wiccan thing. uh, I would probably put that into uh, more what's called uh, goetic magic, which deals with angels and spirits and, and demons and 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 calling them in, and utilizing their power. But the part where they where they call the four elements that's real. That's like that's like a an old Wiccan chant. Uh, a little old they 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 worded it a little differently for the film, but it's an, it's some form of calling the guardians of the elements are used to invoke the spirit of the goddess or to cast the sparkle, for sure.
0: So is the law of threefold in the movie the idea that if you cast a wicked spell on people, it could come back at you three times harder? Is that a real thing?
1: That is. And that actually, it's interesting because that idea is present in lots of different magical and occult traditions, not just Wicca. You find it in the Lima, which is the religion began by Aleister Crowley. Uh, you find it in something called the Golden Dawn. It's in various forms of tribal magic, shamanism. It, it's an old idea. It, and, uh, I mean, some would even call it karma. You know, one of the things I think is
0: interesting in the film is that I think it tries to make the argument that there are two types of magic. There's being a natural witch like Robin Tony's character, Sarah, or there's like yeah. being the other people in the group who are just learning the spells and trying to do everything exactly as a book says. Is it true that there are two types of being magic?
1: No, no, that's, that's not true at all. There's no such thing as, as being a natural witch that I think was a concept that they made up for the film. Magic is like anything you get out of it, what you put into it.
0: Is there a benefit for a witch to be part of a coven? Because here it seems like that goes very, very wrong.
1: It does. It does in the film. It does go wrong. But that's not typically the case. Do I think it's beneficial? I definitely think it is. I have never felt more spiritually connected to witchcraft than when I was in a coven. And after my coven dissolved, I sort of fell out the practice and it's only been recently that I'm kind of kicking myself and, and, and getting back into it. I think of it as like having a workout buddy. It's a lot more motivating. It just brings you all closer together and helps you realize that you're a part of something greater than yourself. I mean, and I think specifically in terms of this craft, when you're part of a coven, there is a magic that happens when, when people are, are, utilizing their their forces and intentions but towards the same goal that you just can't replicate as a solitary witch. That being said, I have no qualms about solitary practice at all. People do it all the time, and they're able to be just as, feel just as connected as if they were as part of a coven or a group. But for me personally, I definitely found that when I was part of a coven, I felt a lot more... Uh, a lot more connected to the the ritual work that we were doing, for sure. It almost feels like the craft taps
0: into something ancient, this idea that witchcraft has yeah. always been about society being terrified of teenage girls discovering their power. I mean, that goes back to Salem.
1: Absolutely. I think a lot of people are afraid, when, especially at that time when girls got together and girls did things with each other, because, and then it proved that they didn't need boys around to give them power. They didn't need boys to give them validation that they could get it from each other. And at the time, that was a really, that was a really progressive idea for girls. I I don't think that the film gets enough credit for teaching a generation of girls that they could be just as powerful with each other as they could by themselves or trying to chase down boys or be with a boy. Like, I, I... I really think that that was a. I really think that was an important lesson that girls got to learn.
0: Yeah, what's crazy is this idea that teenage girls being powerful seemed to scare the MPAA so much that they rated the craft an R, even though there's not even any blood. There's barely even any swearing.
1: There's not any blood or sex or nudity or really even a lot of profane language in the film. It's not even, I would even say, a scary film. It's It's not. There's no violence. It's not. I wouldn't really... Yeah, when it was rated R, I think it was simply because it was about teenage girls doing something that's very taboo.
0: You know, Rachel True, the actress who played Rochelle, the swimmer, has said in interviews way after the fact that at the time when the film came out, at first she wasn't invited to the press day. She felt like she was really cut out of the craft promotions, and she thought it might be because she was the only black actress in the film. How does race play a role in the witch community today?
1: Oh, my gosh. it's I want to say it it could be even worse now than it was before, and I think social media has really fueled that because, especially Instagram, there's sort of this witch community that's sprung up on Instagram um, that's very aesthetically based, And I don't know so much about spiritually based, but it's definitely heavily based in aesthetics. And the aesthetic is very particular to thin white girls and women with long hair looking very sad and and wearing black clothes and and wearing very flowy things over their faces and wearing flowers in their hair and they're lost in the woods. It's created such a rigid image of what witchcraft is in our modern day. And I think that's really upsetting because witchcraft and magic comes from all parts of the world. It comes from all different communities and cultures and and and, and traditions. And to see it just sort of become this thing that's very uh, Euro Eurocentric and Western centric, I think there's such a disservice to what the community is about. That's not what magic is about. Magic is meant to make People who feel like they're shunned from the world feel like they're connected to something greater than themselves. And so it's really frustrating to see the community, I believe, become a lot more homogenous and heteronormative and just very white. It's really, it's really, I think it's a huge bummer.
0: So it's been 20 years since the craft came out. What does it mean to the witch community today?
1: It's actually still a lot of debate about it when it when the film first came out, obviously it was hugely inspirational to teen girls who maybe had never experienced witchcraft before thought about it. But a lot of elders um very smugly uh, rejected the film because they it was not uh it was not. A completely accurate depiction of witchcraft. It made it seem like something that could be used for evil. It made it seem very harmful. And um, uh, I mean, but that's the point. It's a film. It's meant to dramatize the story. It's, it's not meant to. Uh, it's not meant to illustrate a coven after after a ritual, just eating and drinking and, and watching the game. Like that's not the point of the film. So there's a lot of, and there's still a lot of older Wiccans who really dislike the film. But among my generation, it's so revered and it's seen as so instrumental to the awakening spiritually, socially, aesthetically for so many girls. And I could not have predicted when I was that age and was so influenced by the film. I couldn't have predicted that as I got older, it would still hold that same regard for me and a lot of other women my age.
0: Well, Megan, thank you so much for talking to us about The Craft. I really love your perspective on it. Thank you so much for having me. That was modern-day witch Megan Friedette on The Craft. All hail Manon, or whatever name you please. We'll be right back. Pay attention to the name Sasha Lane. The unknown 21-year-old actress took command of this year's Cannes Film Festival with her starring role in Andrea Arnold's American Honey, a wild, surprising, and super, super stoned-out road trip flick about a gang of homeless kids who travel the country selling magazines for two slightly older and seriously scandalous ringleaders, Shia LaBeouf and Riley Keough. American Honey is Sasha Lane's first movie, but you would never guess it from her confident control over every scene. And you would never guess that this tattooed, dreadlocked Texas girl never even meant to be an actress. Andrea Arnold discovered her on a beach during spring break and was like, hey, you want to be in a movie? But that's Sasha. She is original. So I was kind of sort of not that surprised that when I asked her to pick her favorite high school flick, she picked a truly cult comedy, the 1999 murder flick Jawbreaker, where popular sociopath Rose McGowan accidentally kills her best friend, and then things get even, even worse and crazy and violent and strange. Okay, Sasha, let's get into it. So for people who have not seen Jawbreaker, what is it about? it's really dark it's about
2: these girls who are trying to like pull a prank on their best friend and end up killing her (laughs) so then someone finds out so they're trying to hide it by turning this geek into like you know like a boss ass (laughs) or i can't i don't know
0: if i can say that but you can say anything you want cool (laughs) like you
2: know basically turning into like one of the cool like bad bitches to like keep her from telling on them and it just goes into this really dark weird thing and i kind of dig it (laughs) (laughs) what about it do you love so much i think i love how twisted their minds are because you see these most high school movies and even though it's not like the best movie usually these high school movies these girls are just like i'm gonna shove you in a locker and talk about you but like no i'm going to mess with your mind and they're so vindictive and so Calculated, and I think
0: that's super uh, trippy. I know, because girls were kind of brilliant and evil.
2: Exactly. You know, we can be these sweet little silly things, but no, I think we know a lot of what we're doing.
0: Definitely. So this evil click is headed by Rose McGowan. Mm. She has a bunch of rules. You know, like rules like don't eat lunch in front of people because mm. you don't want them to associate you with digestion. Yeah. Don't ever pick up the phone on the first ring because that makes you sound desperate. When you were in high school, what were the rules about being cool?
2: I feel like my level of cool was cool, but not too cool. So there was no rules, but it was, you just got to chill. You just have to, you, for me, it was not overthinking things and being a certain way. And I don't know. I never really got down with the like legit cool kids because I just don't follow rules very well, apparently. Wait, What? so what uh, What were you like in high school? Man, I was I was actually kind of quiet in a weird, like, I, I feel like I was sociable, but I didn't really hang out with a lot of people. Like, I I was friends with a lot of different people from a lot of different groups, but I wasn't just in one click because I'm such a dipper. So, I'm like, I'm trying to hang and then instant I'm like, eh, i trying to leave. I'm, I need to be able to dip and not feel weird. So, yeah, I mean, I did a lot of sports and was involved in a lot of things, but I think in a weird way, as far as like, I was in student council, but I was just there to get people hype. Of course, I wasn't really about it. It was, yeah, it was weird. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So what were you doing when you were in student council?
2: Um, I was, the person who would make like the announcements like, yo, come to this game. So I would go on stage and be like, yo, come to this game. Cool. Sounds great. And just kind of <laughs> be weird. And I mean, I was cool with everyone. So it helped, you know, it wasn't just some like lame person who is super stiff talking to people because no one cares. You're eating lunch. No one wants to listen to some like rando. Yeah,
0: that has to be like, Acting 101, can you walk into a room full of people who do not care about what you have to say because they're eating lunch and get them to pay attention? I guess so.
2: Just because, I mean, I think it was one of those situations where people are like, what is this girl doing? Because I'm rapping on stage. I'm just saying things like, all right, let's get lit tonight. And then people are like, don't say lit. That infers drugs. And I'm just like, what do you mean? And I'm, I'm like this. I pause and make weird faces. And people are just like, can't help but. Laugh and look, I guess. And then they pay attention and
0: they end up going to the game. (laughs) But did you do any acting or anything in high school? Were you one of the theater kids? Oh, my gosh, no.
2: (laughs) I'm so awkward and uncomfortable. So this is actually really crazy to me. But I stayed far away from theater and all of that as much as I could. Which is weird that I got chosen for the student council thing. It was by accident. And it just worked. And it sucked. (laughs) But it's fine.
0: So did you have any other weird hobbies when you were in high school? Um... Honestly, I was such a weird kid.
2: I literally, I read books in my closet and I... Wait, I'm sorry, what? You
0: read books in your closet? (laughs) Yeah,
2: because (gasps) when I read books to escape, so, you know, you're kind of in this world and then I like really small spaces. I like to get as small as I can because I'm so uncomfortable that I like to fold into myself. So a closet was a good way to fold into myself plus no one knew where I was. Because no one thinks to go check for their child in the closet. So I st- hung out in the closet a lot.
0: Oh, Wait, I need to be able to picture this. <laughs> Will you describe this closet for me? Is it full of clothes? Do you have pillows in there? Yeah, okay. So
2: it's just a tiny little closet with a couple clothes and shoes. And like just kind of books all in it. And then imagine me against the wall with my knees up. Just reading books for hours and hours at a time. And... Usually there was like a little light in there and that's about it. Me in that closet. What (laughs) did you like to read? That's so weird. I don't know why I never tell people what I read. I think because it's my escape. It's my own place to get away. So I never said it, but I guess it was more like deep things or stuff that was very realistic to like life. And so either it's fiction or nonfiction. I liked crime stories and all weird things like that. Kind
0: of creepy stuff. <laughs> you know, I was wondering, when you were describing Jawbreak Era and you are talking about that plot, you know, there's the part where Judy Greer, the giant nerd, mm-hmm. um, her name is Fern Mayo, mm-hmm. gets made over and turned mm-hmm. into Violet and becomes, like, gorgeous and popular and just her brain is like, whoa, what is happening yeah. to me? This might be a weird question, but I couldn't help wondering if this last couple the, these last couple of months since Can has felt a little bit like that, like learning how to be in front of people. Yeah,
2: in a way because I feel like she was very insecure of who she was and so she found this and kind of got sucked into it and maybe that's a part of who she was inside. A part of who I am inside is still a very uncomfortable and very, um yo, this is me type of person. So I am aware that, okay, now it's in the public and you have to have – You have to talk to people. But I like making connections. I love it. And I love... um, I mean, I just kind of am who I am. So if people don't enjoy that, I'm just like, well, I'm sorry, dude. But this is what's up. So it is... I mean, it's really weird. I guess more of like the getting dressed up and getting makeup and all of that is the really extra like weird part. Because it's not me at all. Yeah. What is that like? I feel bad. But as soon as I'm in the chair too long or like, you know, they're picking and prodding at you, I'm just like, yo please get away. This is a lot. I just want to wear a crew neck. And I mean, I love the clothes. At least I've been comfortable in them, but, and I feel beautiful. Obviously they do such a wonderful job, but it's kind of hard to go through that all the time.
0: Like, whoa. You're
2: yeah. So on
0: for the camera. Do you get much of a say in what you look like?
2: Um, yeah. I mean, the people who have been around me are very open to who I am. And also I th- there's just no way that you're going to put me in something absolutely out of my comfort zone or something that I don't feel right in. I'm just like, okay, no. Because <laughs> I will run off and I will put that sweatshirt on. So you better give me something extra chill or I will be in whatever I want to be in. Yeah.
0: So if they remade Jawbreaker,
2: <clears throat> which character would you want to play? Ooh, maybe – I don't – what's the main girl's name? I forgot the the main one who – like the nice one? The body. No, the mean.
0: Oh, the mean one. Yeah. Oh, the Rose McGowan one? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Kind of hurt just because if, when do you ever? I don't ever want to be a cruel person. I don't ever want to be that harsh, but I feel like I'm pretty smart and I know how to get away with certain things. I think it'd be kind of dope to really go and embrace that and just be like, yeah, this is what happened. And this is how I hit this body.
0: I feel like I'm revealing a lot. This is a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But no, to get to be evil with no consequences?
2: Yeah, just really, like, an evil, but, like, in a way that I feel like she's just, like, I got caught, and I'm not going to let this further on, so I'm going to use my brains that you think are dumb, and I'm going to figure out how to clean this situation up. And I think that's pretty boss and creepy.
0: Do you think of American Honey as a high school movie, even though... The kids aren't in school. They're school age. Um, No. I feel like it's more of a
2: – it is a life movie because no matter how old you are, I feel like there's still people who want to be that free or have never felt that free before. Or, I mean, it has to deal with, like, everything that people go through. And it's just such a life movie. And I feel like the way high school movies at least are made, and that's why I say no, is because – is very much a simplified version and it's also very cheesy and unauthentic and just kind of not how up to date things are, you know. Like there's not so much of stealing lunch money I feel like <laughs> in actual life <laughs> than there are in the movie. So, yeah, I think it's more life than just high school, you know. It could be anyone, any age.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so
0: much. It the film is super fun and I cannot wait for people to see it. I oh, appreciate that. <laughs> And go watch jawbreaker if you have not seen jawbreaker
2: and don't judge me for being creepy but it is really interesting
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was sasha lane breakout star of american honey and fan of all girls who are not afraid to go after what they want i cannot wait to see what sasha does next Here is the setup of Final Destination, if you have somehow missed Final Destinations 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. The chaos starts when high schooler Alex, played by Devon Sawa, boards a flight to France with a huge chunk of his class. Before the airplane takes off, he has a premonition that it's going to crash, and everyone aboard is going to die. So, Alex runs off the plane, drags a half dozen friends and rivals and teachers along, and then the plane does crash. Kaboom. Everyone dies. But Alex beat death. He beat fate. And that's what we like to see in Hollywood movies. People taking charge of their own destiny. Getting their own happy ending. But Final Destination is different. These survivors are still going to die. And soon, and we're all going to watch. Here, fate always wins. And that's not Hollywood. That's ancient Greek tragedy. So I asked USC Classics instructor Lucas Herkenroder to watch Final Destination and tell us more. So Lucas, I was watching Final Destination recently, and there's a line from the mortician, Tony Todd, that really jumped out at me. In death, there are no accidents, no coincidences, no mishaps, and no escapes. You have to realize that we're all just a mouse that a cat has by the tail. Every single move we make from the mundane to the monumental, the red light that we stop at or run, the people we have sex with or want with us, the airplanes that we ride or walk out of, it's all part of death's sadistic design leading to the grave. And that line really jumped at me because, I mean, except for the parts about, like, airplanes and sex, it sounds like the kind of thought that you might see in a Greek play, like Oedipus.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the thing that struck me about the film is the kind of strong preoccupation with the necessity of death, even though the characters are trying to avert it, you know, that's kind of where the story is. Can they, can they escape what's kind of for sort of already taken for granted about how they're going to end up? Um, The Greek audience. Yeah. really would have liked that idea of some sort of necessity looming over all the characters, you know, different ways of interpreting that, I guess.
0: I mean, Oedipus is this play about a man who's fated to kill his father and marry his mother, and no matter what he does, he can't escape his fate. Just like these kids can't escape dying. Like what? What role did fate play?
3: Uh, first of all, the fates are a trio of goddesses who um, determine kind of how our lives will end up long in advance. And
0: oh wait, fate—that's right. Fate is actually characters in Greek plays. I yeah, forgot the about Moirai
3: that. is their name. That's what they're called. And then, like everything related to death, has a divine presence and a personality. Like Hades is greedy uncompromising, all these, the the ways that, the, that, that fate and the necessity of death were sort of personified in divine forms, I think kind of speaks to the, yeah, absolutely, the kind of preoccupation with death as a sort of background of all storytelling, maybe, if you want to think about it that way.
0: You and I met at USC, and I remember one of the things learning in the classics department there was that in the Greek world of plays, their version of Hollywood, their version of movies, they didn't have a lot of original stories. They, they were always making sequels. Like you would write a play of Medea, and everybody knew the arc of that story. Everybody knew what happened when you wrote a play about Oedipus. It's almost like writing a movie today about Captain America. <laughs> would a Greek person, if you could transplant them to the modern times, would they like Final Destination? What would they make of it?
3: I think a few things would stand out to them. I mean, the background of death we've talked about will be a familiar form of storytelling, Um, the, the activities of the characters, especially like the character, Alex, and thinking about how to like thwart the fate that's thrown for him and the different ways the characters attempt to like stave off the, the ending that's sort of been told to them that is, that is coming. But then I think especially they would also like the fact that these are like young adult stories. I mean, myths are always about, uh men and women kind of, like, just on the edge of becoming adults. I don't know if they had, like, ideas of teenagers, if that's really, like, the idea. The, I don't know <laughs> if that's really the, uh, the kind of concept that translates, but, but the...
0: Because you were getting married, you were being an adult when you were Yeah, right, young.
3: right, exactly.
0: You just touched on something I think is really interesting, that you have these characters in Final Destination, like Alex, like his friends, like his frenemies as well, who are like, this doesn't have to happen, we can beat this and that seems to strike on a very greek idea which is hubris.
3: Yeah, that's like the whole basis of I think the connection. You know, that's why I've, ever since you mentioned this idea to me, the the thing I've always thought about was the way the characters kind of take for granted from the beginning that they'll be able to sort of figure out all the signs and and kind of rewrite the story based upon some kind of superior problem-solving skills or kind of control of the divine forces that are pitted against them. And that's the story, I guess, right? Their failure uh, in doing that. Um, that's a pretty Greek idea, I think. That's kind of, that, that, that's, a, that's what I think stands out to me most.
0: Yeah, well, let's zoom in then on some details in Final Destination. Like, what we see here a lot is when something bad is happening. You see wind. Is nature a force in Greek plays?
3: Yeah, nature is sometimes dramatized as a divine force, as a cosmic force. I mean, the Greeks have different ideas for how they stand understand nature and the extent to which that they understand it coherently, as a coherent force, I mean. The resonance I get from this film, though, is that nature is a sign of the agency of a death, I guess, like when it begins to act. Um, so it's kind of like one of the things that the characters are supposed to notice, right? So the So in scenes where the where the action is kind of intensifying right before a given character is knocked off. Um, maybe this is one thing that the character should see, right? And that to be able to see it would allow the character to define or rewrite the, uh, the, the, the situation of the story or to rewrite those circumstances. Um, uh, but we... Yeah, I, I suppose that relates to what you were saying earlier in terms of, like, how the audience receives it. The audience, we know that the wind is kind of a symbol of the impending doom about to happen, uh, about to affect one of the characters.
0: You know, the funeral parlor guy, who I quoted at the very beginning of the segment, he seems to serve a pretty familiar role, which is the role almost of the
3: oracle. Yeah, he's like the... He's the kind of voice of authority. You know, we... We take for granted that he's to be trusted. I guess because he speaks with a deeper voice, right? Uh, Yeah, anybody who talks like this. Yeah, maybe everyone
0: respects them. It works for me all the
3: time. Maybe deeper than that. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that this idea that there's some authoritative voice that knows the story, from which the characters and their limited knowledge are uh, allowed to have a glimpse of something that may help them. And of course, we know it won't. Um, That's a kind of important trope in. Uh, Greek storytelling. And yeah, it's represented in the oracle, like, for example, in the story of Oedipus, where he receives the information that he is going to sleep with his mother and kill his father. Um, So, he heads out from Corinth, where he's grown up. Thing is that those weren't his biological parents who raised him there. Uh, He runs into his father on the road and ends up sleeping with his mother down the line, so ends up fulfilling the prophecy that's given to him by the oracle
0: you know we're talking about fate and how there's not much these characters could have done however there's one thing that happens at the very beginning of the film before even the accident starts which is when Devin Sawa is packing to go on his flight and his mom looks at his suitcase and she rips off the tag from his last flight and he's like oh that's good luck and that's the moment where you think oh no what has she done is there a history in classical literature of needing that kind of a thing, that necessary incident that might have set the course for everything that's about to happen?
3: Aristotle says that it's vital to dramatic action to have signs, like intelligible signs that like propel the action forward, right? And so that tag is an example of the need to think forward that, well, yeah, in fact, his luck is actually going to run out if he's placed all that emphasis on it, you know, given the way that that's foregrounded or staged in that scene.
0: And I love that because to me, it shows me how alive Greek theater is today. Well, Dr. Herkenroder, Lucas, thank you for making us all a little bit nerdier about a bloody film that we love.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: That was USC classics instructor Lucas Herkenroder, making our guilty pleasures a lot more geeky. If you want to get into Greek plays, and they are awesome, check out Medea in Oedipus for sure. And then, check out Euripides the Frogs. It is every snarky argument on film Twitter, written 2,400 years before Twitter existed. I am so glad Lucas could join us for this week's episode of Skillset. And I am so glad you could join us too. Thank you for listening. I'm Amy Nicholson, and I'm on film Twitter at Nicholson. If you liked getting nerdy with us, subscribe to Skillset on iTunes or your favorite pod catcher. And if you really liked it, give us a rating. Tune in again next week for a new batch of experts on our special salute to the high school films of Reese Witherspoon. And hopefully, a new, new way to look at the movies.
2: This episode of Skillset was produced by Michael Katano, Mukta Mohan, Kasia Mihailovich, and James T. Green for the MTV Podcast Network with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.